Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to, yeah, that's probably an ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about advertising, marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. Got a great panel this week and a lot of fun topics to talk about. Joining me, as always, is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim. Thanks for having me. And uh, we've also got fresh back from Barcelona, Spain, uh, two of our technology writers, uh, Lauren Johnson, a staff writer covering technology. Lauren, great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And Marty Swant, also a technology writer, a staff writer for Adweek. Uh, welcome back to the country, Marty. Buenos tardes. My Spanish is terrible. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we... Uh, we will be talking in just a little bit about uh, Mobile World Congress, which both of them have been at for the last uh, last week or so. Uh, but uh, we've got a bunch of other stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about some news in the marketing world. And then, as always, Tim's going to recap the ads worth watching uh, from the past week. Uh, so something to look forward to. And then we will deep dive into Mobile World Congress and what we picked up from that massive event in Spain. But first, the news. So uh, one bit of interesting news for those who care about such things as branded tweets on Twitter, uh, which we do, sadly. Uh, Denny's uh, set of a record uh, or seems to have set a record for the most engaging brand post in Twitter history. Uh, this is something that goes back to the, the heady days of the Oreo dunk in the dark tweet, uh, which was obviously an iconic kind of turning point in the Super Bowl a few years ago uh, and really kind of proved that real time marketing had a lot of value. But, uh, you know, by comparison to modern tweets, that one is not exactly gigantic. It was uh, over 7,000 retweets, which at the time was real record breaker. Now has long since been lost in the fray. Uh, one of them uh, what, that has kind of held a crown since then was the Arby's tweet, uh, which during the Grammys, Tim, am I remembering right? Uh, it was on the Grammys, yeah. And uh, Arby's, uh, see, if I can remember right, Pharrell Williams was wearing a... Uh, 
a tall cowboyish hat, and Arby's tweeted, uh, can we have our hat back? And that blew up and became, uh, you know, maybe not the number one in terms of uh, retweets, but it certainly became kind of the most iconic brand tweet and considered one of the most successful. Again, kind of set the bar pretty high for real-time marketing. Now we have a new front runner, which is uh, Denny's. They took advantage of a meme. Uh, you know, Denny's is all about memes these days on Twitter, and they took advantage of one that, I don't know, I call like the zoom in meme, but it's uh, taking advantage of, of kind of a mix of things like mobile uh, and high-res photos. And so the meme is that you say, zoom in on the dog's nose, and you zoom in on the dog's nose, and there's some text that's hard to read. And it really only works on mobile when you can kind of pinch and zoom in, zoom out. And, you know, the message on the dog's nose may say, go to the left paw and all this. And then you eventually get a very mediocre payoff. So this uh, meme had already been going around for a week or two. And, you know, it's the Internet. So it was probably like three years old if you asked the right person. But uh, it had really just started to go mainstream. Denny's did one that said zoom in on the syrup. Uh, you know, there was uh, some pancakes. And then it just is kind of the usual, go go to the bottom left, go to the top left, go to the top right. And when you finally zoom in on the payoff, it said something like, you know, there, did that distract you from existential dread for a few minutes? You know? And so it's this kind of surprisingly uh, real, uh, I think our headline even said something like, you know, Denny's got too real uh, with a new meme. Uh, and it just exploded. And within 24 hours or so, it had already uh, surpassed uh, the... Uh, the Arby's hat, uh, I interviewed the CMO of Denny's about it, basically just said, you know, that no, we're not really going to like sit down and have big long meetings about what worked and what didn't from this tweet or what we can learn from it. He says just part of their ongoing strategy, uh, which is to have conversations that are as topical and as strange sometimes as you would have at a Denny's booth. I, I don't know about, I'm curious for you guys on the panel, like that doesn't, really strike me as an accurate strategy. I don't I don't think that the kind of pop culture and internet culture references that Denny's is dropping on Twitter these days, they don't really feel like they are some sort of parallel for booth conversations. I, yeah. yeah. You mean people aren't sitting in uh, Denny's booths talking about dark internet memes? <laughs> they're, talking about, they're talking about dank internet memes. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I don't know, Marty, what's your take? I mean, on this on this strategy and on Denny's kind of their standing in in the, you know, the, the greater pantheon of, yeah. of meme-friendly brands. You know, that's a good question. I mean, it's funny. A few, it's, gosh, probably a few weeks ago, I actually talked to Denny's CMO about some campaign they're running on Pandora. And they're talking about the same kind of line about, you know, trying to be more conversational both in the booth and online. And I just don't see it working yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. It just even just the meme talk just seems like it's it's almost like if you do anything on memes, you're trying to catch up with the past. But yeah, I mean, you have to have a certain self awareness, right? And so, so they've done some before that were popular. Like their, I think their second most popular tweet of all time uh, was a reference to a, uh, a popular rap song at the moment, and they just turned it into a, a lyric about grits. And, you know, it did very well, but 90% of the responses were like, stop. You know, it was kind of like, dad, stop. And this one was a little more, I think, in the in the moment, in the zeitgeist of like kind of tapping into how everybody feels about these things. It's like, oh, well, that was dumb, but it was a, a nice distraction. So just to throw out some numbers, uh, this one is standing now. I've got the tweet in front of me at 118,597 retweets. 
and 166,198 likes. That's that's pretty huge. Um, I wish Denny's would just come out and say, like, we we write really stupid tweets sometimes and people love them versus like, let's let's tie it back to the booth. And we're trying to like, it's just that's all just marketing speak kind of made up on the spot. You know, and, and, and if you think about if this is the greatest brand tweet ever, then then Twitter ads are, are in a sad state. I mean, this is a funny little thing, but if you know, go and look at all the amazing ads that brands make every day. And if this is the best they can do on Twitter, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, sad, isn't it? I, yeah, I, I do. I think it's sad. Um, <laughs> Laura's like, yeah. I know. Well, and I think the other the other few examples you mentioned about whether it's Arby's or Oreos or or whatever whatever brand wants to try to test this thing out, like so much of the real time social content is just honest. I I feel like a lot of it's just pure luck. Like you just manage to hit a post a, a tweet at the exact right time that it, you know it's going to take off online but like it's a formula that is obviously very difficult to replicate maybe that speaks to you know Denny's CMO saying like no we're not going to analyze this and dig into this too much because there's kind of a certain just magic about it that it's either going to work or it's not uh, and more often than not it doesn't work well, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, throwaway stupid humor either. But let's not pretend that it's it's like a wonderful, mar- you know, marketing. I mean, you know, it's cool to amuse people in, in random and silly ways. And that's 90% of what Twitter is. So in that in that sense, it really fits in. But great, great advertising. I mean, well, I, I, I one note on that, like that. going back to what Lauren was saying. I mean, last week, actually, at Mobile World Congress, the um, one of the, the chief uh, like global creative people for Twitter was actually saying brands, please stop newsjacking. Uh, she was just saying, you know, people doing it way too much. And it really ended with, like you guys were saying, dunk in the dark. Like, it's just kind of over. And, and there's someone, someone else in the same panel uh, from Ogilvy, and he was saying brands should stop thinking social first and start stop having a social strategy and just building your social into your overall strategy. And so if you're focused too much on a meme, it's, I guess you might lose lose sight of things. I guess essentially I'm just saying I agree with Lauren and it seems like even Twitter's head of strategy is saying pretty much the exact same thing. So, Well, one interesting uh, learning from this was that it is very difficult as we tried to quantify these things. You know, what is the most engaging brand tweet? Uh, I, I specifically talked to Twitter about this and they said, we, we, don't, we don't track that. You know, the most they were able to say was that is the most retweeted Denny's tweet of all time. I mean, there was not a lot of debate about that. Den- Denny's knew that on day one. Um, but, you know, beyond that, they just said we don't really track uh, brand-specific tweets to them. They don't have it carved out separately from other kinds of tweets. It's certainly nowhere near uh, one of the most engaging Twitter posts of all time. Uh, you know, many of those have done hundreds of thousands, as we all know. But, you know, so that was kind of interesting. That, But giving it a superlative, there was a Wendy's tweet from like 2011 that said retweet and we'll donate 50 cents to help foster kids. Uh, that thing had basically 200,000 retweets, uh, which would surpass this. And that was 2011 retweets. You know, we've had retweet inflation since then. Um, so, you know, who knows? It's very difficult. And But that one only had like 800 likes. Yeah, so so putting numbers to these things, putting superlatives on, is difficult. But yeah, you know, it was a fun exercise, and it's to to all of your points. It's interesting sometimes just seeing what what resonates with people. In slightly bigger news than specific brand tweets, uh, Snap Inc. Uh, finally went public. I think last week on the podcast they were within 24 hours, so we we basically said it's coming very soon. Uh, it has since uh, hit. 
the it doesn't yeah it doesn't sound like it's going fantastic uh, I believe this morning the stock price is down about 11% from the IPO so it's about 21 bucks compared to $24 at launch um, and there's a whole variety of reasons that this thing is having some trouble. Uh, our tech editor, uh, Chris Heine, did a great piece kind of looking at, uh, I think he called it seven challenges that uh, Snapchat's parent company has to overcome if it wants to be the next uh, Facebook on Wall Street. And one of those is that people keep comparing it to Facebook, which I guess we're doing <laughs> you know, with that headline. But, uh, you know, these that investors are a little too eager to see Snapchat become Facebook instead of just letting Snapchat be Snapchat. Uh, there was a lot of concern about growth, uh, whether it can maintain steady growth. That's something we've talked about on the podcast recently. But it had about a 14% U.S. growth over the last year to 70 million or so. Uh, they're up to about 158 million users globally, which brands are, are probably going to love. Uh, some of the other challenges that he listed were avoiding ad fatigue, monetizing their hardware innovations like spectacles, uh, and, uh, and a, a few other trends. Uh, so definitely check out that story on kind of the seven challenges uh, that Snapchat's uh, facing uh, on adweek.com. But uh, I'm curious, Lauren, what do you think is Snapchat's biggest obstacle? I mean, yeah, I hate I hate to kind of keep harping on it and coming back to it, but you can't, it's really hard to deny the comparison to Facebook. Just because, and not not even just Facebook, like specifically Instagram is really what, Snapchat's biggest competitor is right now just because they have snap or Instagram has basically copied Snapchat stories and they're on it, the audience that is watching those stories on Instagram is more or less on par with Snapchat um, and you're seeing Instagram finding ways to monetize those stories obviously that's all plugged into face the Facebook network of data and everything else so It'll be interesting to see how it kind of shakes out, but it, it's really hard to deny that Facebook isn't having some kind of impact as, as Snap kind of, you know, in, the, in these first few initial weeks as Snap is going public. We'll talk a lot more about Mobile World Congress and, and uh, in a minute, but I'm curious, you know, what was the vibe uh, there uh, about Snapchat? So I, uh, it was interesting, I guess, being there during the same week um, that, that this all happened. I... Uh, Martin Sorrell had a really interesting keynote and kind of breaking down his thoughts on Snap from the uh, agency point of view during his keynote, which maybe we can either get into in a little bit or or um, something else. But he, basically the point just being that he thinks uh, Snapchat does have the potential to be a Facebook or Google-like investment for his clients. Um, Right now, it certainly isn't there. I think in 2016, WPP spent close to $5 billion with Google and about $90 million with Snapchat, just to give it some comparison between the two. Um, but so those kind, of, those kind of discussions were interesting to, to talk about and hear a little bit more about it at Mobile World Congress. Yeah, and to just give some context for those not quite as nerdy as us, Martin Sorrell is the CEO of, uh, or maybe chairman, I always forget his specific name, but he's the head of WPP, the largest holding company in the advertising world. Uh, so certainly when he speaks, uh, a lot of folks listen. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure some of his comments will come up again uh, in a minute when we get to the full Mobile World Congress. Uh, but before we leave Snapchat's IPO news, uh, Marty, wh what was the vibe you were getting from Mobile World Congress on how, how people were feeling about Snapchat and kind of its potential? You know, I honestly didn't hear a whole lot about it. Uh, I mean, the people I talked to seemed kind of hesitant. Uh, I mean, on the, the potential of it, I guess. But 
I can't even think of a single conversation where it was really hyped or, or anything like that. But, but anecdotally, it's interesting. Right before the IPO, I actually have a pair of uh, specs, and, and a friend has been wanting to buy mine. And the other day, I asked him if he was still interested or if he even wanted to borrow them while I was gone. And he said, actually, and this is a, this is a guy that's my age. He's in his late 20s. He, he's a young creative working at an agency here. Uh, just to give some context here. And he said, you know what, actually, I'm actually moving away from Snapchat. I don't even want the specs anymore. I'm going to focus more on Instagram stories. And so even, even the people that might be interested in the hardware that, that see it as a camper company aren't really buying into it. So obviously, that's just one person. Um, the one thing related more to Mobile World Congress was I think there's a question of will the messaging apps, especially the, the ones that are getting more into chatbots, will they be a, a, like a complementary feature to Snapchat? Will those two continue working hand in hand or will they start to compete more and more? Yeah, the mes- messaging apps, is a, yeah, that's an interesting kind of perspective, I guess, from the conference that we were at in Spain because, you know, Snap- Snapchat does have a, a Europe audience, but it definitely is bigger than in the U.S., partly because there's so many other messaging apps in the rest of the world. I mean, Marty um, moderated a panel with, with who, who all was there, Kick and Line and some of those other international apps that we don't hear about nearly as much in the U.S. as, as they do internationally. And that could be an interesting uh, challenge for Snapchat in terms of growth because, you know, the U.S. market still has room to grow, but any kind of international um, push they're going to have a challenge with when you look at all the different messaging apps that are out there. Yeah, there's actually already one. I think it's in China. It's called Snow. It's it's essentially um, like a like a Snapchat clone in in China. And so I don't I don't really know what their plans are for for Asia, but there's already a Snapchat like person out there. Well, we've got uh, quite a bit more to to talk about. And, uh, we're going to be revisiting Mobile World Congress in just a few minutes. Uh, so thanks for the feedback on that. One other thing we're we're talking about, depending on when you listen to this, uh, this Wednesday we're recording this the Tuesday. Uh, on Tuesday afternoon, but uh, Wednesday is uh, International Women's Day. It's being celebrated or protested, I guess, in a lot of ways, uh, marked by uh, an event called the Day Without Women, uh, where uh, or a Day Without a Woman, where uh, a lot of women are going to uh, basically stay home from work or from or avoid their home responsibilities if they if they don't work. Uh, it's manifesting in a lot of different ways. Uh, so we will be tracking that on Adweek.com. We'll be keeping an eye on it. Uh, and we'll have several stories, so definitely uh, check in on that. We're going to have a Twitter chat about uh, International Women's Day and some of the issues that are rising with gender balance. Uh, but we're already seeing a few pretty interesting executions come around uh, market in, in the marketing world. Tim, tell us a little bit about what McCann did on Wall Street. Yeah, so McCann did something pretty cool for uh, the, their client, State Street Global Advisors uh, in New York. Uh, overnight Monday, sometime in the middle of the night, they... Uh, everyone's familiar with the charging bull sculpture down on Wall Street. So what McCann did, uh, they had a sculptor um, create a, a sculpture of a, a, a girl, and she's kind of uh, in this you know posture, kind of squaring off uh, just opposite the charging bull, and the sculpture is called Fearless Girl. And it was made by Kristen Visball, the sculptor, and uh, it, it's a really cool thing. I mean, the, the idea is uh, to celebrate women in leadership positions, and uh, it's really, you know, more specifically, it's part of a larger campaign by State Street to, to emphasize that companies that, that do have women in top positions actually perform better financially than those that don't. And they've got all sorts of data on this. Uh, and this sculpture is, 
you know, really intended to celebrate that, you know, and I just love the gorilla aspect of it. Um, you know, the charging bowl itself back in the late eighties was dropped into that, uh, park. I think it's Bowling Green Park, uh, without permission from the city. And it, it was sort of, uh, everyone fell in love with it and it's still there because, you know, people loved it so much. Um, McCann did get a permit for, for this statue, so it's not pure gorilla marketing. Um, but, uh, I really liked, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, cool idea, really cool looking statue, uh, and, and the real world, uh, aspect of it really has gotten a lot of attention and it's going to be up for at least a week. Uh, the agency said to me this morning, and, uh, I guess they're negotiating with the city for maybe it'll be there longer, uh, if they can get it to be part of the arts program in the city. But yeah, as you know, um, as far as the International Women's Day stuff goes, there's going to be plenty of, of uh, brands um, weighing in on this. It's, you know, um, female empowerment and women's issues in general have been such front and center for, for advertisers over the last year or two. And uh, I expect we'll see lots of, lots of cool stuff this week. Well, great. Yeah, definitely check out uh, adweek.com if you're listening to this in time to catch uh, our coverage of all the events on Wednesday. And I'm sure it'll still be on the front page Thursday as well. And uh, we're going to stick with Tim and move on to my favorite section of the week, which is ads worth watching. Each week, Tim uh, picks up the ads that are actually worth taking time out of your day to sit through and enjoy. Tim, what have you got for us this week? So I'm pretty psyched to have this Coca-Cola spot to talk about this week. Uh, it's called Pool Boy, and it's I think it's one of the better Coke ads we've seen in quite a while. It's this really fun slapstick story about a a sister and a brother who are both lusting after this hunky pool boy who's come to clean their swimming pool uh, on a hot summer day. And so, I mean, I really like everything about this ad. Obviously, it's quite progressive. It's got this LGBT theme kind of woven into it, um, but in a way that's, you know, very organic to the storytelling. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, the way it incorporates the product is really wonderful. You know, the, the brother and sister uh, end up tripping over each other to try to grab a Coke from the fridge to give to the, the pool boy. Uh, it's got this pretty fun twist ending that's really, you know, nicely paced where uh, I won't spoil it, but someone else kind of swoops in and steals their thunder in a pretty amusing way. And it's also just shot really nicely. The colors are really saturated. Uh, everything from the clothing to the set design is really hip and, and great looking. And it was uh, maybe not surprisingly, it was made by the ad agency Santo down in Argentina and Coke fans will probably remember the wonderful parents commercial that Coke did back in 2013 that showed how, how tough it is for parents of toddlers uh, to get through the day. Uh, Santo also made that one. So this, you know, this is an agency that clearly knows how to make a great Coke commercial. You know, my only complaint about it is, you know, why on earth didn't they run this on the Super Bowl? It really would have been absolutely perfect on the Super Bowl. Uh, Coke instead ran that really, really anodyne kind of boring uh, ad about, you know, how Coke goes great with food, um, much more product focused. This is sort of classic Coke storytelling, you know, with a twist, um, that kind of, you know, really makes it timely. Um, again, like, you know, we, we've talked many times on this podcast about, you know, anything progressive now in advertising is almost an oppositional position given, uh, our administration's views on such things. So, um, I wish it would run on the Super Bowl. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe they'll, they'll find a, a decent, uh, Maybe it'll play on March Madness or something, and it'll get a, a, a big viewership because it certainly deserves it. Well, you know, they did run, what, a three-, four-year-old uh, ad, I think, during pregame this year, their acceptance ad. So maybe this one will come back in a later Super Bowl. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what else you got for us? 
So I also want to talk briefly about the new Jose Cuervo campaign. Uh, this is out of CPB Los Angeles. Um, this is actually CPB's second time on the Cuervo account. I, I believe McCann had it for a few years there. But now CPMB is back on it, and they released this two-minute spot this week that was that was uh, really fun. It's actually going to be running as a 60 on, on television. And it's got this apocalyptic theme, which is pretty funny. Um, you know, there's all this uncertainty in the world right now. Um, obviously, we've talked about it a lot. Uh, it's manifesting, you know, even as much as kind of existential dread for some people. And, uh, you know, this campaign kind of plays around with that in a pretty fun way. And the, the theme is tomorrow is overrated. And the spot takes place in a, in a bar, kind of seems to be in the middle of some desert somewhere. And uh, it seems like the missiles are flying, the world's about to end. And, uh, it, you know, it, it starts off in this bar where a, a ton of people run for the exits. Um, but a handful of people stick around and they decide to put the jukebox on. And they end up dancing to Elvis Presley's It's Now or Never. Um, so I just love this ad. It's got, it's got a really cool vibe. And again, it kind of ties in really nicely with the product. Um, tequila being pretty well known as the drink of choice if you're partying like there's no tomorrow. Um, <laughs> it's just really fun to see that idea taken literally. And it's really well shot. It was The director uh, was Ringan Ledwidge. And we've, we've spoken about him quite a bit too. He's a uh, British director uh, through Rattling Stick. who He made the Guardian's Three Little Pigs commercial f- about five years ago. He also made uh, the switch by Nike, which was a, a big World Cup campaign. And last year he did Audi's Duel. So he's pretty pretty great director. And I think all the elements really came together here. Um, and pretty great work by CPMB. You know, it's funny as I've noticed this recently is is we like to play clips from these ads uh, on the podcast when we can. Uh, lately, you know, and these two are a perfect example, is a lot of them are music only with no dialogue. There's certainly nothing new about that in the advertising world, but I do wonder if globalism and just kind of global messaging is really driving a lot of that in, in terms of creative choice, you know, that that brands are keeping dialogue to a minimum so that you can play these anywhere in the world and they'll have some approachability. I don't know. Do you think there's anything to that, Tim? I, yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I totally believe that. I mean, both these ads are running globally and... Uh, when you don't have language barrier, obviously that, you know, it's easier to absorb the message. And also I think, you know, a lot of storytelling doesn't need dialogue. And uh, if, if you have a 60 second or, or in the case of Cuervo, 120 second ad that has no dialogue and it works, chances are that the storytelling is going to be richer even than if you had, you know, had to rely on, on dialogue. I mean, it all, all depends obviously on, on what you need to accomplish. Um, but, you know, these are both beverage commercials. There's not too much you need to say about the fact that they're trying to sell you a beverage. So pretty cool storytelling on both of these. Yeah, right. You know, it made me think of the, uh, uh, was it called The Ballad of Sarah and Juan from last year, year before, uh, from Extra Gum. Uh, but, oh, yeah, sure. You know, the I Can't Help Falling in Love with You um, and uh, from BBDO, a pretty spectacular ad, but that's kind of, to me, the epitome of incredible storytelling that requires zero dialogue and can, yeah, when it works, it's amazing, yeah. completely. All right, so uh, what was your, you had a third one uh, that I believe was not uh, a, a TV spot or video spot. Uh, what else? You- well, yeah, this third one is actually kind of cheating. It's it's not actually uh, an advertisement at all. It's an art project out in California uh, called Visible Distance Second Sight, and it's part of a larger art project that's called Desert X. It's taking place out in the Palm Springs area. And, uh, but it uses sort of the language of advertising. It, it, it's it's uh, a billboard campaign and the artist is named Jennifer Boland and she took photographs of the surrounding landscape uh, near, these, near these billboards and just put the photos of the landscape on the boards. 
And, you know, it's pretty, I thought visually it's, it's really interesting and, you know, it is an art project, but also, also to some degree it's, it's a critique of advertising and how anything you put on a billboard kind of becomes the focus of, of, you know, particularly drivers who are driving down the highway and how the surrounding landscape kind of get, ends up being overlooked and of course even blocked out by, by billboards. So I think the idea behind this project is to sort of put the, the landscape back in focus and so we posted a few of these images uh, on AdFreak this week. And, um, you know, some people said, well, s some people who saw our story in social said, uh, why don't you just remove the canvas from the billboard and have the structure be see-through? You know, then you'd really be advertising the landscape, which, you know, is a fair point. Um, but what the billboards actually do is something pretty interesting. They, turns out the photos in the landscapes uh, are designed to line up perfectly from one specific vantage point, which is actually on the highway. So they're designed specifically for, for the motorist to have an experience of, of seeing these line up. And uh, apparently they have this, you know, there's this magical viewing angle where some, suddenly everything kind of lines up together. And I think the argument really is that drivers who experience that um, viewing angle w will be left with, you know, that they'll, they'll experience you know, appreciate the landscape even more than if, I think if it was empty, um, it would look kind of bleak and, and you wouldn't really get as much of a, of a point. Um, so Baland anyway, describes it this way. She said, um, within the, within the desert empire of roadside signs, these billboards advertise the very thing so often overlooked, uh, looking up at them, our attention is drawn back to the landscape itself, pictured as a stuttering kinesthetic of real and artificial horizons. So anyway, I would check it out if you guys haven't seen it. Um, I thought it was really cool, uh, pretty interesting use of ad space that really kind of makes you reconsider how advertising space works and what else it can be used for. Yeah, and, and to I, I believe there has been an art project or a similar project that did, did empty billboard frames with just the scenery behind it. Uh, and I think, that, I think that that response is valid, that, you know, that's cool and it looks good in a still photo, but when you drive by it, I think it's a lot more powerful if you actually see it line up. Uh, it's kind of like if anyone's ever driven out west, especially recently. There's tons of windmill farms now that weren't there when I was growing up. Uh, and, uh, you know, driving through, that's a, that's a big, you know, it's like Oklahoma and all that area out west when we were driving out west this summer. And uh, when all the windmills line up, like in a straight line so that it looks like one windmill with like a million arms. It's, it's kind of an incredible moment. And all of us in the car, you know, my family are all just looking out the window like, there it is, there it is, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, and then you, you keep waiting for that for the next one. It was anyway. So someone reminded me of that. Yeah. This, this uh, apparently is like that to, to some degree. And it sounds really cool. Well, awesome. Well, thank you as always, Tim, for rounding all those up. And now we are going to move on to our big discussion of the week. All right, so as has been mentioned a few times, uh, last week was Mobile World Congress. And uh, so why don't we start out, Lauren, uh, just tell us what Mobile World Congress is, how big is it, where is it, and kind of what is the, what is the point? So Mobile World Congress is a four-day uh, conference held, technology conference held in Barcelona, Spain. Brings in, a, um, this year it was up slightly, but I believe it's, it's roughly around 100,000 people, which... I've Marty and I have both been to it now twice. We both went last year as well. And um, as I was kind of looking back to compare those numbers to other conferences and stuff, I'd, I'd need to triple check this. But I want to I want to say South by Southwest, just for comparison sake, is closer to 30,000. I, I, you know, don't quote me on that. That could be wrong. But that at least gives you some kind of scale about how big this conference is. And it's more or less held between two Two venues, uh, one of which, which is 
a bit more central in Barcelona, uh, is a little bit smaller, primarily focused on startups, and it has a kind of a younger vibe there. And then there's also the bigger location um, that's a little bit outside of, of Barcelona where the, the bulk of stuff takes place. So it's an interesting um, venue, and, and we're, you know, primarily, I think for years, has focused on more of the inner workings of mobile. So, you know, all of the international carriers send thousands of employees there, which is really interesting to see them all kind of, uh, you know, you, you'll have a, a company like Telefonica or, or those types of companies that, quite frankly, we don't cover a lot. And it's interesting to just see so many people, you know, these companies send so many different people to represent the brand at this conference to the point where like they're all they're all dressed the same uh and they they have these ginormous booths which i have i have been to many tech conferences in the u.s and haven't seen anything quite to the same size as some of these companies pull out uh in barcelona so it's an interesting four days so uh, let's talk about some of the presentations, some of the bigger ones, and then we'll kind of get into some of the trends. Uh, Marty, I believe you covered the Niantic CEO. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, the CEO, uh, John Henke. Henke, Henke. Or, uh, um, yeah, John Henke. Uh, so he gave a keynote speech on, I think it was maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't remember the exact day, but uh, really. And I, I, should, uh, I should clarify that Niantic is the company behind Pokemon Go. Uh, yes. So, sorry, I, I should have clarified that when I introduced it. So, yeah, tell us about what he had to say. Yeah, so I mean, he talked about a couple different things. Uh, he talked more about the narrative of Pokemon Go and how it really rose so rapidly from last summer to now and the evolution of that. Uh, but he also talked about some of their other companies that are a little bit lesser known. Not companies, but uh, what do you call them? Games, I guess, that are a little lesser known. Um that are still using the same kind of technology, such as, you know, the augmented reality to create this sci-fi world, which is another game. Um, I mean, one stat that I thought was really impressive that uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember it offhand here, but I think it was their, their sponsorships with different stores for the location-based uh, partnerships. Uh, they've driven about 500 million different visits to stores and they have about 35,000 sponsored in real life locations. So we talked a lot about how like these people are going in in droves to these stores, which I thought, I guess for, for advertising branding, that was a really powerful number, I thought. Um, I think there are like 9,000 different locations for this Indian telecoms company. I'm blanking on the name. But um, but he just talked about how massively rapid this has grown. Um, but he also talked about how it how they're starting to get into more partnerships with hardware companies and how they're working potentially on some augmented reality glasses. Uh, last year, they did a partnership with Apple for the new Apple Watch. They did something with Nintendo. Um, but yeah, he talked about just a lot of where the company's going. Yeah, and, and I will I will give some uh, firsthand accountability, you know, account of the the foot traffic driving. I, there is a Starbucks near my house that, like all Starbucks, I think, is now a a, a sponsored Pokestop, and my kids will will frequently yell like. Dad, go to Starbucks, go to Starbucks, go to Starbucks. Because, like, there's, you know, whatever, there's Pokemon on the radar. And as someone who's very addicted to coffee, I'm always like, yeah, all right. <laughs> a Charmander <laughs> cappuccino or Frappuccino. Hey, man. Don't they have, yeah, isn't there I'll, a Pokemon drink for less. at Starbucks? There is. There's a po- right. Pokemon Frappuccino. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a Frappuccino guy, so I haven't ordered it. But it's it's featured in the icon of every every <laughs> Starbucks Pokestop, uh, to remind you. There's no signage in the store. It's very much one of those, like, 
not to say it's a secret menu type thing, but I think it's just one of those you either care enough to play the game or you don't care at all. Like they're not going to put up a placard, uh, you know, for their their Pokemon Frappuccino. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting company and seeing what they're doing with AR and seeing the continued kind of second wind that Pokemon's gotten. Uh, they added eighty characters. I mean, we talked about this recently when we had uh, John Hankey on the cover uh, of Adweek the other day, uh, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting one. So, uh, Lauren, tell us about uh, one of the bigger sessions you covered that, that kind of stuck with you. Um, well, I, would, I would guess I would kind of go back to the, what we were talking about with Sorrell and his his speech. Because I, I think, um, you know, when he speaks at these conferences, it, it, I always find that it gives you a little bit of perspective. Just because you see all of this um, tech and all these new things around you. And then you can actually hear from, you know the biggest holding company in the world about how uh, how they're spending to spending money to put that technology actually in use for some of the world's biggest brands. Um, so I, I think his whole the whole message behind um, his session was interesting just because we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the so-called duopoly right now that exists in uh, digital advertising where Facebook and Google control I want to say there's a stat out there that like both those two companies combined get roughly about 85 cents of every new dollar that's put every new dollar that's put into digital advertising. So, you know, the one Watch of the out. main things I'm I'm interested in just is you know where that that doesn't leave a whole lot of uh, money on the table for any of the numerous other tech companies that we cover. Um, so just can't kind of hearing hearing him give that perspective and again get some stats and numbers in terms of how WPP is slicing up their investments uh, was pretty interesting with the growing percentage of that going to snap I mean the the big takeaway from that was that you know it, it might only be 90 million dollars that uh, WPP invested in snapchat in 2016 but then again that was zero you know two years ago so it, it's a it's a growing um, growing app and and seems to uh, it's an area that they're you know apparently quite bullish on at least for the time being. You know, it's, I always laugh imagining someone who like you know went into a coma ten years ago or something and just woke up if they worked in the advertising industry. Like we think of this duopoly, we think of Facebook and Google and their dominance. You know, Facebook especially just did not exist as you know, as a power player until a few years ago, and especially on the mobile front, you know, we've written a lot about that, that they went from essentially zero mobile dollars to, you know, billions uh, almost overnight. Uh, so, it, it, you know, there's there's no saying that, that Snapchat or any other player that we haven't thought about yet uh, could, could, you know, storm up the, those charts and, and take a lot of those dollars. Uh, it'll be pretty fascinating to see kind of how that evolves. Uh, and, and both of you, I feel like, uh, ran into and, and covered somewhat the idea of AI and bots. I, I have to admit this is something where I'm going to maybe sound like a maybe a stand-in for the consumer or a bit of a Luddite, but I still do not understand the allure of bots and why marketers are so obsessed with it. Uh, can one of you kind of just give me a big picture on, on the excitement around AI and bots and, and uh why brands get excited to talk about this? <laughs> uh, I can start on that, I guess. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's something that hasn't necessarily caught on yet here as much in the U.S., I think. Uh, I'm thinking back to, uh, Lauren mentioned earlier, 
did a talk with Ted uh, Livingston, the CEO and, and founder of, of Kick, based in Canada. Um, they've got about 300 million users, and I can't remember the number of bots, bot interactions he said that they've done so far, but a couple, like several, I think two, three billion interactions with different bots so far. Um, but the point is, like, they're really catching on, in, especially in Asia, um, not as much here yet. But in terms of why brands are as interested, I, he made a good point. He said that bots, in a way, take a, take away a lot of the friction that you might have with an app download. So with an app download, you might come across something interesting, maybe in an ad or something like that. But you might not want to download it then and there. You're going to wait to get Wi-Fi. But then once you get to Wi-Fi, you're going to forget about it. And then you might never download the ad. But, the, so, but, but with a bot, you can, you can go on to the messaging app. Let's say it's Kick or maybe it's Facebook Messenger or or WhatsApp or anyone else that has those, and you can just find the bot and pull it up. And then when you're done using it, you can put it away. So it doesn't necessarily take as much clutter on your phone and doesn't use as much data. And so those are two things that are interesting, and especially for brands wanting to focus on the utility space. So maybe they want to have some sort of customer service thing or some sort of brand interaction, maybe a character. But honestly, most bots and even the companies doing stuff in this space will say it's still, to use the overused phrase, but like still early days. Um, even people making bots say there's nothing really impressive out there right now. Um, but it's definitely something to watch, I think. We, we need a Pokemon Go of bots. Please. Like oh, something yeah. that'll, that'll, you know, it's like we'd been talking about AR and location-based for so many years and nobody got excited about it beyond like this nerdy tech circle. And then Pokemon Go came out and it's like, oh, hey, yeah, it's augmented reality and it's uh, it's location-based. And, um, and Snapchat's done some of that too of like kind of being proof of concept of a lot of these ideas, uh, you know, and not to be skeptical too, but I think it also plays into the larger uh, trend we're seeing in automation, you know, just that brands are automating uh, as much interaction as they can, whether it's for, you know, to expand their customer service or in a lot of cases to replace human beings, uh, which can be expensive. So, yeah, you know, there's certainly pros and cons to it. Uh, Lauren, what kind of discussion did you hear around uh, around bots or, or AI while you were uh, in Barcelona? Well, I guess to your point about it being um, a lot of brands being interested in uh, using bots to make marketing, advertising a bit more efficient. I had a super interesting conversation with um, a global uh, digital fo a person from Coke while I was in Barcelona. And, um, you know, a lot of the times when I talk to brands and marketers about AI, I think a lot of people would agree that, you know, it is, it is still fairly early. And they're also kind of using AI and bots more, for, more along the purposes of, like, marketing. So meaning... You know, it's the way to make website optimization more efficient or to do some of those geeky things like A-B testing on a website or more more kind of the mechanical stuff that you could realistically see it, you know, could be tedious for a human. At some point, those kind of tasks will disappear to a machine learning or a computer at some point. His point was kind of interesting and different to me because he was basically talking about replacing a creative agency who in the past has come in and pitched Coke a concept with a bot. Uh, so, you know, his point was that being, you know, a lot of work is already being done around this with AI using to, to write music, 
to write bits of copy. Obviously, you've got companies like IBM's Watson that are super interesting in the space because they're able to crunch thousands and millions of different pieces of data to create something that a human could more or less replicate. The idea is that, you know, yes, it's created by a machine, but there is a little bit of it, you know, a human element tied in there. So I, I, I found my conversation with him to be really interesting because I felt like we were talking about stuff that's beyond some of the basic stuff that people think about AI. He's truly talking about using AI to replace the creative process. Well, let, let's uh, let's talk real quickly about hardware manufacturers, uh, something we haven't really brought up. Uh, there's been, I, I feel like we're at a potential turning point in terms of smartphone manufacturers. Uh, Apple, of course, uh, still dominates, but the iPhone 7 slipped a little bit. Uh, Samsung slipped pretty hard. Uh, Google is having a lot of trouble fulfilling uh, orders for their uh, their Pixel. Uh, you know, my wife tried to get on the waiting list for one and eventually just gave up and bought an iPhone. Uh, so, you know, that's a good problem to have, but it's also, in, in that example, uh, you know, sometimes a bad problem to have. So I'm just personally really curious about the state of the smartphone manufacturers of like who's going to end up dominating who's going to be the major players in the next few years was there was there much discussion of that uh in barcelona and which which companies or how did, how did everybody see the landscape shaping up you know google yeah it's an interesting show from that perspective just because google has a fair a pretty massive footprint really it, at mobile world congress they have this whole kind of like a mini town set up where there's a bunch of different booths there and you can grab a smoothie in the morning and amazing smoothies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Have all kinds of salespeople and stuff around, but Apple, you know, notoriously is does not participate in these kinds of shows. There's no obviously you hear uh, different companies talking about their partnerships with Apple and the smartphone market broadly, but you're not going to find an Apple booth anywhere uh, at these types of conferences. So I th- you know it's interesting to think to think about that. I would argue that I, you know, even without that presence, Apple is still huge. Like, I might not like every single feature on my smartphone, and I've actually grown to like the iPhone less, really over the past year. Or so I've I've kind of moved on and thinking about, you know, I, I think the Pixel is really interesting and stuff. I would not get it though. Like I I'm gonna stick with the iPhone just because it's part of my life. It's part of my daily life. <laughs> And uh, I like how it syncs everything up. And as much as I might complain about it, I, I don't have a real true reason to switch. Marty, you were talking a big game when, when Pixel was announced <laughs> about getting one. Whatever happened with that? I'm kind of sad that you said the wait list is long because I've been wanting to switch over. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I haven't done it yet. I've been waiting to see what's going to happen with the the next iPhone and also what might happen with the next Pixel. No, I agree. I'm, I'm still pretty optimistic about it. And everyone that I know that has one loves it. Um, but, I mean, just to add on to what Lauren was saying, maybe those two companies, Google versus Apple or Google versus Samsung, it's, what's funny about uh, in Spain is there's a Samsung store that was set up last year during Mobile World Congress directly across the street from the Apple store. Um, and... Apple, you definitely see a lot of ads for like shot shot on the iPhone Seven in different buses and or like bus stops and subway stops around the city, but yeah, I'm I'm starting to wonder if it's maybe not a smart decision for Apple to have no presence there because it definitely does because Google has this very optimistic feel and you know obviously the tech industry is 
historically very optimistic industry. You have like like the smoothies, you just delivering those, which sounds small and gimmicky, but it just kind of adds to the the broader brand of Google as being this, um, I guess maybe happier company. I don't know exactly if that's the right word for it, but I don't know. I mean, because it's it's weird because you have those two, but then you have. Um, you have Nokia that released a couple new phones, including like a small throwback retro phone, which isn't going to be available in the U.S., I guess. But um, I don't know. It just makes you wonder why are these other companies even bothering to uh, release stuff? But then we forget that there are others that don't just stick to the two main companies. But I don't know. It's I think this year is going to be a big year for both for both companies in terms of which one might be able to step ahead. Um, Google's um, one of the Google's head of VR actually said that they're going to be equipping uh, tens of millions of phones with daydream VR headset or software this year. And so I'm really curious if they do that, what does that do to the allure of the pixel? If you can use Google VR on any other Android phone, do people stay with what they like or do they still want to switch over to pixel? Well, it certainly doesn't seem to be a problem of desire at the moment since they have been sold out since, you know, pretty much constantly since November mm-hmm. on getting the Pixel out the door. Maybe it's a manufacturing issue or maybe it's an intentional, you know, manufactured demand I, or, you know, scarcity. I, I don't know. But uh, I think if that was the—I remember thinking, oh, they sold out in November. That's actually good marketing for them, <laughs> except that it's kind of kept up and, and getting one beyond, like, a very stripped-down base model— uh, has proven difficult. I still think Samsung, you know, New York Times had a great piece this weekend on Sunday about the about Samsung and just what a bad, bad spot they're in uh, as a corporation. You know, they've got uh, one of their top executives, the son of, of the CEO, the former CEO, and he's you know been arrested. And they, there's, they're dealing with all sorts. They were very tied in closely with the uh, government, which is facing imminent impeachment. Uh, so, you know, they've between that and their phone and their tablets or their phablets exploding, yeah, it's a tough time, and it's a great opportunity for a few other players, maybe Nokia and some of these others, to to step into the void. Uh, well, before we wrap up, uh, any other any other trends or just cool little things that stuck out that you got home and couldn't wait to tell people about? Uh, maybe two two quick things. One related back to AI, which I thought was interesting with what Watson's doing. They had this really cool art installation there where they essentially so Gaudi um, and Tony Gaudi, which is like this major historic. Uh, Spanish architect has all these really cool buildings in the city. Uh, they worked with Watson to essentially show the com- you know the the supercomputer hundreds or thousands of images of his different buildings, along with his writings, along with uh, songs and other articles from from Barcelona, both present and past. And they use that information to look at trends to come up with a design with this New York-based uh, architecture firm. Uh, that created essentially this art installation that was put on the um, the IBM exhibit, which kind of showed how AI isn't necessarily just for analytics, but it can also be used for 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 art in the future too. But the other interesting thing that I'm going to be watching, say like maybe over this next year, um, is just with the mobile carriers. What are they going to do in terms of advertising? Um, I know that. Uh, t- Telefonica's head of advertising spoke um, on one panel, and he was talking about how they want to get more of the advertising budget from from marketers and so potentially compete better against Facebook and Google. Uh, there's uh, the head of data for AOL, which is obviously owned by Verizon, also mentioned that uh, 
that they're open to working with other carriers to kind of pool their data to focus more on location-based marketing. So I'm, I'm curious if they will end up doing more of that or if it'll be uh, kind of a lost cause against these two major players. Uh, so I think that's something to watch along with 5G. 5G, we didn't talk about that much. We didn't write about that much, but 5G has definitely been it was a big trend for the entire week. Uh, the commissioner of the FCC talked about how it could be a reason to deregulate the internet more, which could have implications down the road for advertisers with, with net neutrality. Um, but I think those are the other two major themes that I'm kind of curious in terms of strictly mobile stuff. Lauren, anything fun jump out at you uh, that you maybe weren't expecting going into it? Um, I'm trying to think of anything interesting. You know, Foursquare announced this deal at Mobile World Congress. I, I know. I think I've actually spoken uh, on another podcast that I may have been on about the narrative, the changing narrative around Foursquare over the past year. And um, so, up until now, they've been working with uh, big tech companies like um, Snapchat and Twitter, and even some on the software side. So, you know, an Oracle and those types of companies to plug location data, maybe not an Oracle, but those types of companies to plug um, location data into their services. And now that's kind of been expanded to any kind of branded app. So if I'm a marketer, I can now have, you know, my app powered by Foursquare's data and that sort of thing. And there's just a really interesting case um, for me. You know, a few years ago, they were kind of dogged by all of these acquisition rumors and there was a lot of talk about you know can they grow this the the flagship foursquare app what about then they kind of split that off into these two separate apps foursquare and swarm and now now it's totally pivoted towards being a, a data play and i think you're going to see them become more of a specialized kind of like b2b data company and it, there's a, there's a lot of value you know we all kind of talk all the time about how there's Everyone sort of understands the power of uh, location data when it comes to digital advertising, but not really. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see kind of see what comes out of that because just the whole narrative about it just fascinates me. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to see some of that come out last week too. Well, thank you both so much for giving us your recap of, uh, of Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. And uh, for those who haven't checked it out, you can Google MWC or Mobile World Congress and Adweek and get all of our coverage. Uh, so thank you both so much, and thank you to Tim, uh, as always, for joining us for the podcast. You can drop us an email anytime you want. We're at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. If you got a question, comment, feedback, uh, we love hearing from you. You can also hit us on Twitter at, at adweek. Uh, we've got a bunch of stuff coming up soon. We've got our South by Southwest coming in hot right after Mobile World Congress, so we're going to be sending several folks out there. Uh, we've got a big package on what's going on in Atlanta, which is a really thriving hub, not just for brands, but also for tech and for agencies. Uh, so we've got that coming in early April and uh, lots of other stuff. So keep an eye on adweek.com and uh, you should uh, stay up to date there. And of course, keep tuning into the podcast. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Kevin. If you haven't, please take a moment to leave us a review or some ratings on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. You can just, on iTunes, just click a few stars that you feel is appropriate and move on. Or you can leave a longer review, which helps new listeners discover our podcast and makes us just feel super good. So uh, thank you to those who have left us reviews. And if you haven't, please take a moment to do so. I'm David Greiner with Adweek. It's a pleasure as always, and we will talk to you next week.
Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.